Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's the holiday season. It's almost 2024. By the time people are listening to this, it probably will be 2024. Uh, How have your holidays been? They've been great, Josh. I've been spending some time with family, watching the news, uh, probably doing a little bit too much refreshing of Twitter saying, where is the news? And then it finally starts happening. So, But yes, I had some real downtime with family, so it's been good. Um, And Happy New Year, everybody. Indeed, Happy New Year. Uh, A bit of the same on my end. It seemed like there was a bit of a lull there, and then everything kind of picked up, and you know, it was it was courteous enough for especially around Christmas. Things did quiet down a little bit, save for, a, you know, a Christmas Eve Jerry DePoto signing, because of course. But uh, yeah, it seems like they've kind of picked up, gone back to normal since then. And, and we still have movement. And I think we're going to have some exciting rumors and action to look forward to in January of 2024. But for now, we have a whole boatload of news to cover from the last few weeks of 2023. Um before we jump into that, and like I said, there's a lot to cover here. Um, do you want to give a quick update on on what we've been seeing on the site recently? Yeah. So for those of you who may have experienced a, a site error called a 500 error, just clear your cookie and it, clear your cookies. Go to your settings and clear your cookies, and that will solve it. We know there's a problem. Occasionally, an ad doesn't load, and that causes a breakdown. If you're using an ad blocker, that in particularly will cause that. Most people are not seeing that. Most people are fine. But if you do see it, just clear your cookies. We have a ticket in with our tech people uh, to fix it after the holidays. So just a heads up on that. Awesome. And to anyone who has run into that, thank you for bearing with us. And hopefully clearing your cookies will solve that issue. All right. Uh, let's let's get into it. Uh, the Dodgers. <laughs> so we talked about the Dodgers a lot last time. Um, because right before our last episode, the news of the Otani signing had broken. But... We knew that there were going to be deferrals in the contract. We knew there were going to be a lot of deferrals. We just had no idea exactly what that looked like. And then a few days after we recorded, we got the full details of it's not just some deferrals. It's almost all deferred. It's $68 million a year out of Otani's $70 million uh, annual salary. So he's going to be actually making $2 million a year for the 10 years of his deal. And then the 10 years subsequent, uh, he'll be making $68 million a year um, when he's already off the team. So this is obviously, you know, a couple weeks out of date at this point. There's been a whole lot said about this deal. It takes the um, the present value of the contract down into, I believe the number was like 446 or something like that. Um, it, it pulls the present value of the contract way down. And that's something that we've talked about a lot in the past of time value of money. A, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar 10 years from now. And that compiles pretty quickly over the course of 20 years. And when you're talking about this many millions of dollars. So there's there's been plenty of reporting about what this means for the Dodgers and how it impacts their luxury tax. There's been reporting that this was Otani's idea to make it so the Dodgers can make additional moves. And we did, in the, in the following weeks, see them do exactly that and make a couple other pretty big moves. Uh, but before we get into those, John, I, I want to get your take on, first of all, just, just the concept of deferring this much money and you know what your reaction was to it, what you think it means for Otani and for the Dodgers. And then also, 
where are you on this whole oh they're breaking baseball debate that popped up from this i have a feeling you and i'll be on the same page on this but i'm curious to hear your take yeah i'll start with the latter part of that i have no interest in oh they're breaking baseball i think it's great for baseball i think baseball needs more stars it's gonna people are gonna come out and see otani especially now that he's on the dodgers nothing against the angels but he's on a higher profile marquee team now which by the way has just gotten even stronger so I know the, the the counterpoint to that is you've got a sort of a haves versus have-nots things going going on with the big market team spending a little bit more. But, you know, look who was in the World Series, folks. It was the Diamondbacks, and yes, the Rangers spent some money, but the Diamondbacks, not so much. And they made it to the World Series, and it happens all the time. That is more of a crapshoot. So I think the whole baseball's broken thing is ridiculous, and let's just have fun with it. Um, as, far the, as far as the contract uh, with Otani... We knew when the 700 million number was announced, or shortly thereafter, that there were we heard there were deferrals. I think the last time we we spoke in the podcast, we weren't sure of the number, but we knew it was going to be not 700. So there was a little part. I mean, it's like yeah, he probably shouldn't have reported that. That was just like a dirty trick in a way, you know, because the real actual value was more in line with the 46 million number we're hearing, which is a lot closer to what everybody else thought, including us, that he would make. And it makes more sense. Um, and Otani's in a really unique position to actually do that. If he's only taking $2 million a year in salary. You know, we know, I've heard reports that he's getting like $50 million in endorsements. He's got a New Balance contract. He's got all these other contracts. He's a big star in Japan and so, so forth. So he's making plenty of money outside of the Dodgers. So he doesn't really need to take that much of a salary with the Dodgers. So he basically used that opportunity to kind of use the time value of money to make sure he's paid well into his retirement years. So... And that also is inconsistent with his is consistent with his approach to hey let's build a winner I want to be on a winning team so if I'm only making two million it gives you guys more money to spend on Yamamoto and some other guys and Glasnow that we'll talk about so so he's doing it for competitive reasons as well but he he's kind of in a position of luxury where he can afford to do that so I'm not going to say good for him because <laughs> no one else needs to say that for him but you know maybe good for the Dodgers I'm sure um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's fine. I think everybody wins. Yeah, I don't understand a lot of the the kind of common complaints in response to this. Like I, I understand a general like frustration or, or jealousy, I guess you could call it, of hey, why do they get all the shiny new toys? Like why why can't the team that I root for ever be in, in the running for a guy like this? And I, I understand that, but but to people thinking that, oh, this is the Dodgers ruining baseball, well Otani or Otani was offered the same deal by the Giants, right? That that was reported that the Giants matched that 700 million figure with the deferrals and other teams were right in the race up until the last minute. So it's not a case of the Dodgers just blew everyone out of the water monetarily. It was there were some competing offers and Otani decided that he liked what the Dodgers had to offer better than anyone else. Is it the Dodgers' fault that they've built an awesome team, that they have a reputation of developing talent, of making smart decisions, of just being a well-run organization. Is that a problem <laughs> that, that a player wants to play with an organization with a good team and a good system in place as opposed to, you know, not, not to necessarily badmouth the Giants, but they've had a bit of a mess the last handful of years. They, they've been kind of this 500-ish team. Is it is it such a huge you know, structural issue with MLB that its best player would rather play for a really good team than just kind of a mediocre team. Like, I don't, I don't think that's an issue. I don't think Otani has some issue. I don't think he's some sellout or anything. 
of, you know, he's been the best player in the world the last few years, and he just hasn't played a postseason game in Major League Baseball. Is it really that big of an issue for Otani to want to go to a team that's going to guarantee him postseason appearances year after year after year? Uh, fans will often, you know, if a guy isn't motivated enough or doesn't seem to care enough about the postseason, they'll use it against him. You know, people use this against Trout when people are talking about how great Trout is, a lot of his kind of haters will be going, oh, but he has he done it in the postseason? So they'll hold it against Trout, but then those same people, I feel like, will flip and hold it against Otani if he tries to go to the postseason, if he's, you know, dipping into his competitive nature and saying, I want to go into the playoffs, the Dodgers are going to give me the best chance to do that. So I don't know. It's <laughs> It all seems kind of silly to me. It all seems like jealousy that gets misplaced into, oh, baseball is broken because because it's the Dodgers specifically. Yeah. But I think when you just look at every kind of angle of it, it's hard to really fault anyone here. And I don't, and this isn't some loophole in the rules either, the deferrals. It's it's always been in the CBA. It's nothing that's being exploited. It's just, like you said before, a unique case where Otani is in a position to take advantage of it in, in a way that no other player really can. And just one last point on this, then we'll move on. You know, the Mets tried to overspend. Steve Cohen gave $43 million to Scherzer and $43 million to Verlander and signed a bunch of other guys and it didn't work. And so then he backtracked and said, you know what? I'm not going to throw good money after bad Canusley. So he sort of made that sort of rookie owner mistake of trying to buy a championship and you can't really do that. And that was what was interesting last summer at the deadline was saying basically, okay, <laughs> I realize that you can't just throw money at things and expect to win a championship. And that's still true. So even so now the Mets are, you know, pulling back and Steve Cohen has kind of learned that the best way to build a winner is through a combination of homegrown talent supplemented by free agents typically. And you have to have that sort of right balance. And the Dodgers have always had that. They've had a lot of homegrown talent. James Oppmann had a four-war year last year out of nowhere, and they've got more coming. And so they've got this blend. And so it's not broken from that point of view because the Dodgers are basically augmenting what they already have in place. So they're... They're still sticking to like, okay, we've got a blend of young, uh, you know, homegrown talent and some superstars. What's wrong with that? That's pretty much the winning formula. Okay, next. Yeah, exactly. And, and they've done a consistently good job of picking the right guys also, right? They, you know, maybe they could have extended Corey Seager and he would have had a solid place there, but... You know, Trey Turner has taken a bit of a step back since leaving the team. I know it's it's only been a couple of years, so we really can't say too much there. Um, Cody Bellinger doing what he did, kind of unprecedented. But but you you know, I don't think the Dodgers are, you know, hurting that they didn't extend the guy. And there's been a handful of other names. You know, Hyunjin Ryu, they let him walk. Um, Zach Greinke walked. It's they haven't just been handing out blank checks to every superstar that comes through the doors. They've been picking and choosing. They'll pick up a Mookie Betts, a Hall of Fame talent, and lock him up long-term. They'll lock up Otani long-term. When Freddie Freeman kind of falls into their laps, they'll lock him up at an affordable rate long-term. And and that's kind of what they're doing. They're They're picking their spots to spend big on the superstars. Sure, they have some of those kind of mid-range guys. You know, they'll they'll keep Max Muncy around or keep Justin Turner around for a few years or an AJ Pollock on, on the kind of mid market. But otherwise you're right. It's, it's a lot of these high paid stars and it's this influx of young talent. They constantly have coming through the system to supplement it. And that's the model. That's what every team with money is going for. That's what the Mets are trying to emulate. And like you said, they just kind of jumped the gun on the, okay, let's spend on stars part before they had 
what they needed to have in place organizationally right. for the young talent side of it. And Cohen course corrected. He traded Scherzer and Verlander for some of that young talent. And I think he's working to improve that. Um, and I think kind of their restraint this off season shows that. Yeah. He's basically learned his lesson. They had re had to rebuild their farm. So they're doing that. They're taking a step back and they're kind of trying to get that mix right for the future. So, and you know, that's what they all said. And now, you know, David Stearns is doing that. They're saying sustainable success. So many, you know, president of baseball operations guys and GMs are always using that phrase sustainable success. The Dodgers already have that sustainable success. So they're just doing what they're doing. Right. A couple other points on the Otani contract. Um, there's an interesting opt-out clause based on, I believe it's whether Andrew Friedman or principal owner, where's his name in this article? I can't find it. Mark, uh, Mark Walter. Walter, controlling owner. Um, if either of them are to leave the organization for any reason, it's not just fired. It's if they go to take another job, if they retire, if they sell the team, whatever. Um, if either of those two leave, Otani has the option to opt out at the end of that next season. Um, so that's an interesting thing that we haven't really seen before, um, at least at least for a player contract. I believe there was a stipulation like this in Joe Madden's uh, managerial contract with the Rays, and that's why he was able to join the Cubs when he did. I think. I hope I'm not making that up. Um, but that was that was interesting to see, and I think it just kind of speaks to what Otani has spoken to a lot since signing this deal of how committed he is to the organization and the vision. And a lot was made of, um, I believe it was Friedman, who said something along the lines of, I, Otani asked us how we viewed the last 10 years, and we said it was a failure because we only won one World Series title in 2020. And so it's pretty clear what the vision is for the organization, what the vision is for Otani, and that's like multiple rings over the next 10 years of his deal. And if he feels like there's a change at the ownership level or at the... Uh, baseball ops level that's not in line with that he now has the option to step away and go find another job if he wants to or just use that as leverage to uh to either renegotiate the contract or get some other certainties so it's it's an interesting stipulation again something that i don't think any other player can really pull mm -hmm. off but it's worth noting yeah no i think it's brilliant actually and you know his agent actually used the term key man uh clause in a contract and I've actually had experience with this I used to be a musician I had a record deal and the singer of our band had that key call it key person clause so if that person left the band it would significantly change the direction so that's the idea when someone is so significant that they could leave and change the direction you want that assurance um, and so yeah I think it's I think it's good it's unusual it's not that un yeah I, it's fairly common in you know music and entertainment that you know you could argue sports is part of the same world CAA is an agency that also handles entertainers so they're used to it so but it's the first time really that I've heard of it's been applied in this context yeah and I, I think it's highly unlikely we see it come to pass uh, uh, we see anything happen there I mean you know, a lot can happen over the course of 10 years, obviously, but it seems like they have a pretty good thing going in LA. I don't see any reason that Andrew Friedman would get fired. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, I can't speak to Walters and his ownership of the team, but it, again, it seems like you have a pretty good thing going. If you're going to spend out, fork out $700 million for Otani, I think you're in it for the long haul. Yeah. So. I, I think the other point, um, which you might've intended to bring up, but I'll just bring it up is that the team is required to set aside the deferred money in escrow. I think they have like two or three years to do that. Then it basically has to sit there and wait to get paid 10 years later, right? But while it's sitting there, they can invest it. 
And by the way, the Dodgers are owned by a really successful investment group. So they know what they're doing. So they're going to grow that money. So you could argue that it's not hurting them at all. In fact, it might actually been, be helping them because they can say, okay, we're setting aside the other X amount of money, $68 million a year in escrow. We're investing it. It's going to compound. By the time you're getting paid, it will have doubled or tripled. So like, it's like house money. Everybody wins. Yeah, it will have doubled or tripled, but Otani still just gets the sixty-eight. They get yeah, the I know, but the, from the Dodgers, uh, yeah, 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 yeah Dodgers that's what I'm like, saying. yeah, sure, we're good. Yeah, exactly. Um, one last point I have on that before we move on, I did see an interview that Inez Bolello, who is Otani's agent, and there's been a whole lot written and said about him as well. He seems like an interesting guy to say the least. Um, he he gave an interview with Bob Nightingale of USA Today. And he seemed to be suggesting that not only were the deferrals Otani's idea, which I think it's been widely reported, I think everybody's fine with that, but he seemed to be suggesting that they were kind of a last minute thing and that they had the $700 million agreed upon and then he was like, oh, by the way, we can defer a lot of this. I don't buy that even for like half a second. <laughs> like, there's just such a such a delta here between... You know, it, what, what Bolello is suggesting is that the Dodgers truly did offer him $700, $700 million in present day over the course of 10 years with no deferrals. And then Otani went, yeah, we can kick that money back. I, I don't think that's remotely possible. I think that's kind of some some posturing by the agent to try and make his client look better. Yeah. Um, and I don't think and obviously the Dodgers aren't going to dispute that and make the guy look bad. So it's kind of just something that he can say. And, and it's also probably an attempt to kind of um, to kind of support that $700 million. Like you, like you said a little bit earlier, it's almost a fake number. And I could see there being some contention the next time that a top, top free agent hits the market where the player and the player's union are saying, hey, let's look at that $700 million. And ownership and teams are going, hold up, that's not actually $700 million. It should be. 460 is the high mark or whatever. And so I could see this being kind of a posturing play to that front of like the agent trying to support that $700 million number and saying, yeah, he had that on the table. And just because he's such a great guy, he decided to kick it back 10 years and decrease the present value of the contract substantially to help his team win because he's such a unicorn, such an amazing guy. And like I said, I don't deny that the idea to defer all that money came from Otani's camp, but I don't think it went, I don't think it quite went down that way. I don't think it quite went down as, you know, he was a minute away from signing his name on the dotted line. He says, well, actually we can do it this way. And, and I'll just take less money to help the team. I, I don't think that's how it went. Yeah. No. I have Okay. <laughs> Let's, uh, I think that's enough Otani for now. We're going to be talking about him for the next decade. So, uh, let's let's put a pin in that and let's move on to the Dodgers' other subsequent moves that they made here because they certainly didn't stop there and I don't think they're done even now as we as we sit here heading into 2024. Um, first, they made an aggressive trade. They picked up Tyler Glass now and Manuel Margot from the Rays in exchange for right-handed pitcher Ryan Pepiot and outfielder Johnny DeLuca. Now it's kind of difficult to firm numbers on this trade just because it was contingent contingent excuse me on an extension that glass now signed with the dodgers um in, in accordance with the deal and so 
His extension builds upon his $25 million salary for 2024, which he was already guaranteed um, thanks to a previous extension he signed with the Rays. On top of that, he's getting $30 million a year for the next three seasons and then a club option for 2028, which is either a $30 million club option or if that's declined, it turns into a $20 million player option. So in total, if you're including the $25 million that he was already getting, it's a $115 million deal for the four years. And then if the club option is exercised, it becomes $145 million over five years. If it is not, then it's $135 million over the five years if the player option is exercised. Um, because of that kind of swing that's there, it's tough to put a, a true value on, on Glass now, now that he has this extension signed. Uh, what we have is either 14.1 million in surplus value if the, uh, if the club option is exercised as opposed to the player option. Um, or 24.1 million in surplus if that $20 million player option is exercised instead. So a bit tricky, but it's it's somewhere in there. <laughs> it's somewhere in that 14.1 or 24.1 million, depending on whether you think he's going to be worth $30 million in 2028. Is that the year? Uh, 2029. Um, so so there's the the glass now end of it. Um, basically, from the Rays' point of view. They, there was no, we talked about this when he signed the original extension with Tampa Bay. Uh, Glasnow was coming off of Tommy John and he was going to hit free agency at a really odd time where he had only, you know, made kind of a partial return from the surgery and hadn't, didn't get a chance to establish himself. And we talked about how difficult of a situation that was going to be for him. And instead, the Rays signed him to a pretty clever extension where they got um, they got this 2023 season at a discounted rate. I believe it was five or ten million dollars, and then heavily backloaded the extension. 2024 would have been his first year of free agency. Instead, he got that 25 million dollar guarantee, and what that meant was he's getting a high value for that year and giving himself an opportunity to reestablish himself before free agency. On, on a firm baseline instead of the shakiness of, oh, how, how well is this guy really going to come back from Tommy John? And so far, that's worked pretty spectacularly for him. He was pretty good for the Rays in 2023, and we knew from the beginning that, that $25 million number was going to be hard for them to fit into their payroll, and we kind of expected him to get traded if all went well, and he did. And he fits the Dodgers much better with that number and with the extension and with how they're going all in right now. This also gave the Rays an opportunity to kind of salary dump Manuel Margot, who they've been trying to trade all offseason. He's a little bit underwater. We had him at negative 2.5 million in surplus um, at the time of the trade. The Rays did also kick in four and a half million dollars in cash. And in exchange, they got Pepiot, who we had at 25.3 million and DeLuca at 4.8. So Depending, again, on the glass now option there, the gap between the two sides is either $15 million if the club option is exercised or $5 million if the player option is exercised. I'll pause there. <laughs> There's a lot of numbers flying around. Um, how, do you, how do you evaluate this trade, John? How, how do you break this down into a way that makes sense? And, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. So this one was messy, clearly because there's so many moving parts um 
The fact that it was content, the trade itself was contingent on the extension is really unusual. The only time I've seen that in the last several years was when Sonny Gray was traded from the Yankees to the Reds. And so, so the question there from a modeling perspective is do you value the uh, trade based on the original sort of idea that Glasnow only had one year left at 25 million? Or do you value Glasnow as, you know, with his kind of new contract? The fact that it was contingent, and this was very important, and it was reported widely that it was contingent on the extension, means that we had to essentially say, okay, he's got a new contract. So essentially the contract happens before the trade instead of after the trade. And that's a big deal because having it happen before the trade added some surplus and made it more fair, which justified Pepio, who has has reasonably high value, going back to the Rays. The Rays insisted on it, on getting Pepio and DeLuca. The Dodgers basically said, well, we'll only agree to that if we can get Glasnow extended. And so they worked it out, and Glasnow himself worked it out. So good for all parties involved. I think everybody worked in the best interest. It's also really unusual that the Rays sent cash. Margot, we know, is underwater based on our modeling. And in fact, they sent $4.5 million in cash to cover that in a little in a little extra in case is uh, because so that's that's covering the deficit this year and the buyout next year for Margot. So, <clears throat> you know, it's one of these trades where it makes sense when you just say, oh, okay, I get it. But then when you crunch the numbers, like, okay, could it be this, could be that. But at a certain point you go, eh, it's fine. You know what I mean? That's where I got to. Because, like, it's you, you, you go so far into the future that you don't know if that option for 2028 or 2029 is going to get picked up or not. And so you have this either or thing going on. At a certain point, you just go, it's fine. It's a little bit of an overpay, but it makes sense on a sort of common sense level. So that's where I ended up. Yeah. And one thing that we've mentioned a lot is that our, our values model to the aggregate. You know, we aren't modeling to specific teams because these that aggregate's pretty subjective and teams are in different places at different times. And you look at a trade like this between the Dodgers and the Rays, and they are on complete opposite sides of the financial spectrum. And so it makes sense that Tyler Glass now on his $25 million salary might not have the same surplus to the Rays as he does to the Dodgers. So that can kind of explain any sort of a delta that's there. Um, A couple other ways to kind of help explain it, and, and this isn't necessarily making excuses for gaps in the values, but it's just like different ways to look at this is... First of all, you could you could choose to view that option as a coin flip, as a 50-50. I believe our model has it as just very slight. Glass now is very slightly above that $30 million mark in that final year, which would suggest that the team option will get exercised. But that's really a rounding error when you get that far into the future and that nitty-gritty with the numbers. So if you instead view it as a coin flip and say, okay, well, we need to you know, just take half the surplus of that year you know 50 50 odds that it's either the full surplus or or no surplus that year um then that makes the deal a lot closer that that helps you kind of bridge that gap that we have right now that's one way to look at it uh the other way to look at it is like i just said that you know just because glass now now has this new surplus value he it's this weird gray area where he like you said with the extension being contingent on the trade the Rays couldn't necessarily market Glass now to other teams as this is this player we have with $20 million in surplus or whatever it is. You know, they didn't have that kind of leverage. So while, yes, the, the Dodgers want to acquire the player and they want to acquire this additional surplus from, you know, from, from the extension, the Rays can't necessarily, they can't say, oh, if we don't get this deal done, 
then we can go shop him to other teams at the same at the same value and get a better return from them. They don't know that because again, that that value number is contingent on the extension. So I think that can kind of explain sort of splitting the difference a little bit, kind mm-hmm. of explain a bit of the value. But again, I don't with with all the moving parts here, I don't think we need to be haggling back and forth to get this to exactly fair by the model. I think there's enough enough going on here that you can kind of say, did both sides get what they need? Yes. Was it an egregious overpay on either side? No, not at all. It looks pretty close, actually, given all the, the error bars involved. Um, not not to mention that we had a manual error on our end for Ryan Pepiot, where we had him entered with six years of team control instead of five. Yeah. So that 25.3 number that I mentioned for him was actually incorrect. It should have been 19. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, that's not a model error. That's a manual entry yeah. error on right. our part. And so right. even that brings it closer. And so... No matter how you slice it, yes, if you just look at pure numbers, there's a gap here, but it's it looks really fair. It's it's tough to it's tough to really suss out with with exact like all all of the values are an estimate to begin with, and this deal just introduces four or five different forms of error that that you typically don't see in in the average trade, and so with all of that kind of accounted for, it it. It looks like it makes sense to me. I think everybody's kind of on board with it across baseball. There were no resounding cries of overpay from either side here. So I think it's fine to just say, yeah, good, fair trade. Yeah, that's where I ended up. And, you know, by the way, this one was reported in the news so many days in advance that people kind of got used to it. You know, it wasn't like a big surprise because those names were being bandied about like four or five days before the trade actually happened. And then there was contingent. So we had to wait for all that to get sorted out. So by the time it actually was said and done, I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) You know, it's just whatever. And that's kind of where I ended up too. Yeah, yeah. And and when it was initially reported, that was before we really knew the extent of the extension. And so it did look like a huge overpay at that time because – just on the one-year deal, I think we had Glass now at like nine million in surplus because he was right. just on that one-year twenty-five million dollar contract, and so yeah, at the time it did look pretty lopsided, especially because that's before we caught our error with Pepio and we didn't know about the cash going um, from the Rays to the Dodgers either, and so yeah, that that was one that only got better as as the story developed as time went on. Yeah, and. I will say there was a little bit of surplus accumulated with the extra years on the new contract for, for Glasnow. So, you know, so so that kind of made up the difference. And I will say we haven't really talked about the fit, but, you know, this is perfectly from the Rays' perspective. This is what they do, right? They trade an expiring asset for a younger one, you know, rinse, repeat. You know, they, this is what they do. And Pepio, they see a lot to like, and they've got him for, what we say, five years? Yeah, and he's already had some inklings of success with the Dodgers and the Rays know how to work, uh, develop pitchers. So I think he's going to work out pretty well there. And the Dodgers obviously clearly needed Glasnow and another high-end arm for their ambitions of winning World Series. So I think everybody's happy. Yeah, and and getting into that a little bit more, um, the Rays, it's it, like you said, it's kind of textbook for them. Uh, I think there was an article on Fangraphs by Michael Bauman, I'm pretty sure it was. Was it Bauman or Ben Clemens? Uh it was titled something like I know when the Rays will trade Ryan Pepio. <laughs> and it was just a, right. a kind of a, an oral history of all the times that the Rays have acquired a young stalwart arm. They, they, they build them up through the rotation, let them establish themselves for three or four years. And then they hit arbitration and get traded away for the next arm. And it's a pretty constant cycle that we've all been kind of subconsciously noticing but when you put it out in paper it's like wow that's crazy you know they really did turn james shields into chris archer into tyler glass now into ryan pepio uh crazy 
Um, so, so there is that element of it. And then Johnny DeLuca, it's really easy to look at him and see, hey, they just traded for younger, cheaper, more cost-controlled Manny Margot. Great, good for them. Um, and then the Dodgers side of it, it seems pretty clear what their intent is here. They are going all in for the postseason every year of the next 10 seasons. And, you know, they they have kind of a stock of young arms to help them get there. But they really need some of this frontline level talent so that once they get to the postseason, they're not pitching Lance Lynn in an elimination game <laughs> like they did this past season. And they don't have to rely on, on arms like that to get them through October. Instead, it's going to be an Otani. It's going to be Tyler Glass now. It's going to be Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who we're going to talk about in just a second here. It's going to be real frontline quality arms, and they're going to try and stockpile enough of them. It's kind of the Rangers approach right now as well that like, hey, we can't, you know, we can't rely on every ace that we have to be a healthy pitcher throughout the entirety of the season and postseason. We can go shotgun approach and acquire as many frontline arms as we can and hope that at least a few of them are healthy. And and that's going to be our, our that's how we put ourselves in the best position possible to succeed in October. That's pretty clearly the approach for the Dodgers. Seems like it's the approach for the Rangers and the Braves as well of we can't just put all of our eggs into one basket. We can't pray that Corbin Burns, who we trade a bunch of prospects for and extend, is now going to stay healthy every year of the deal. We have to be realistic here. We, as the Rangers, can go sign a uh, Jacob deGrom, but we also need to, you know, be able to pivot if we need to and go trade for a Scherzer and go trade for a Jordan Montgomery just in case Scherzer doesn't hold up. And then, oh, let's go sign a Tyler Maley as some, like, late season insurance in case guys don't come back as healthy as we'd like them to. It, it seems like a pretty consistent approach across some of the top teams in baseball, and I think it makes a lot of sense, and, and that's exactly what the Dodgers are doing with this move is just continuing to add to that stockpile of frontline talent that they can use in October. Absolutely. Okay, and let's let's get to that last bit of, well, actually not last bit of Dodgers news, but that, that last last huge signing that they made, and that's Yamamoto. He gets a 12-year, $325 million contract. It is not deferred at all, and it, it does also include a $51 million posting fee to his previous team. Uh, the Oryx Buffaloes of NPB. Uh, that doesn't necessarily get factored into the contract, and I believe it does get paid out over time, if I'm not mistaken. But that is a real expense that the Dodgers have to account for here. And there are two opt-outs um, in this deal in, after the 2029 and 2031 seasons. So I think that's, uh, doing the mental math, I think that's like his age 30-ish in 32 seasons, something around there uh, off the top of my head. So massive contract for a guy who's never pitched in MLB before, blows every other record for international contracts out of the water. Um, but there's really good reason for it. Yamamoto is only 25, and according to every evaluation that I've seen, he is the real deal. He's like worst case Aaron Nola, best case like an ace, ace, like Everybody seems pretty on board with this. And at only 25, you're getting his peak prime year. So even if you compare it to a guy like Nola and the contract he just signed for his, you know, mid to late 30s, it's apples and oranges. So that's why Yamamoto's contract just blows Nola's out of the water and blows so many others out of the water. It's because 
very rarely do we ever see a frontline starting pitcher hit the open market at age 25. So that kind of explains the volume of the deal and, and the size of the deal. Um, we can't necessarily evaluate it within our model just because we do not have the baseline of statistics that the model needs um, for these international free agents. So for Yamamoto, we don't have the data that we need. We don't have it for Jung-Hoo Lee. We don't have it for Yuki Matsui. Uh, none of the other guys coming from overseas. So we just kind of have to <laughs> shrug our shoulders and say, yep, looks, looks fair, I guess. That's what the market said was fair. Um, but then as they kind of establish an MLB baseline, we'll be able to plug those numbers in and, and see how things are looking as their career goes on. Um, so with that, don't have a ton to say about this one from a baseball trade values perspective, more so from right. a baseball and I can't wait to watch this guy pitch perspective. Uh, but I'll go ahead and toss it to you for, for your take here. Yeah, no, I'm on the same boat. The thing that kind of continued to jump out at me was the fact that he's only 25 and, and he has some amazing accomplishments, you know, through his young career so far in Japan. So, but look, it's just, as Josh said, we don't, our model doesn't um, go there, basically, is the simple answer. We can't model foreign players because we don't have the, the right data, the right sort of equivalencies and such. Uh, we leave that to the teams. The teams have far more people working for them and who are great at that. And so, you know, so I tip my hat to them. If they figured it out, so be it. It is a lot of money on paper. It's more than Garrett Cole got, but okay. But, you know, granted, it's 12 years. So, you know, it's a big gamble. Um, but clearly they've done their homework. A lot of teams did their homework as well and were willing to go there, which suggests that there was substance there. It wasn't just one team taking a risk. It was multiple teams willing to take that risk, and that typically shows you that there's some substance to it. So I expect this to, you know, I, I won't say work out, but I expect there's a higher percentage, a higher probability that it will work out because of that sort of foundation. And the fact that he's 25 and probably hasn't even hit his prime yet, so they're buying prime years. Uh, teams love to buy prime years. That's why they love young, controllable talent. That's where the that's where the bang for the buck is. You'd rather spend the money, in other words, on a 25 year old than you would on a 30 year old, because you have, you know, a, a big window. The the late 20s is typically the best years. So that's what they're buying. And so I think that was the difference maker here. Yeah, and just circling back to what we were talking about earlier with with Otani's contract, it's kind of the same deal here, where other teams were right in this territory. You know, the Mets reportedly offered the same 325 million. The Yankees reportedly offered 300 million, but over a shorter time span. And so higher AAV on that. And with the Yankees and the Mets, there's also the consideration of, yeah, maybe it's, it, it's not, well, it's not like we're comparing California to Texas here, but I'm pretty sure New York has lower tax rates than California. I, I may be mistaken there. I'm not super familiar with the East coast, but Given all of that, the fact that Yamamoto still chooses the Dodgers, it it really says more about personal preference for these players and and the the team that they're going to than it does about you know the Dodgers blowing everybody out of the water monetarily. Again, same same deal as Otani. There were other teams heavily involved here that just didn't have the less tangible upsides that the Dodgers do, and so they lost out. And I mean, I think that's fair you know it, it's fair for these guys to want to be a with the best team and b in a location that suits them and their families they're on the west coast which is going to be a five or six hour shorter flight back home to japan than it would be if they were in new york and that's just kind of a you know for for decades and decades of baseball history new york has had a geographical 
advantage. And for the first time, we're seeing them perhaps be at a geographical disadvantage, and everybody's real upset about it. I think as a West Coaster, I find that kind of funny. Um, and, and that's just how I'm looking at this. But at the end of the day, it's it's guys who seem like they wanted to play together, who want to play for the best team, and this is the place that they're getting to do that. So I don't see a problem with it. I, I really can't find one. Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's not that complicated. They just want to play with the best team. Yes, the Dodgers have a big presence in in, uh, in Japan and probably worldwide. They're one of the bigger, you know, the Yankees clearly dominate the worldwide market in terms of branding. But the, the Dodgers are kind of catching up. I'm not an expert in that, but Shining Otani obviously helps, and this is going to be a factor as well. But in other words, he wants to play for not only a winner, but like a global brand. That, you know, is, he seems like the kind of guy that likes the big stage, that likes the, you know, to be part of a thing, right? It's a big thing going on in Dodgers. He wants to be part of it. So, no, I think it's all that is. Yeah. Okay, now this is the last Dodgers move. Um, They needed to clear some roster space for Otani as well as Joe Kelly. And to do so, they made a trade with those Yankees. They sent infielder... Yorbit Vivas at 8.9 million in surplus, and left-handed pitcher Victor Gonzalez at 0.8 million uh, to New York in exchange for shortstop prospect Trey Sweeney at 3.8. So, bit of a gap here, um, accepted by the model as a moderate overpay by the Dodgers. And there, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. The first is that the Dodgers were having a roster crunch, as we've seen in the past when that happens, when you need to clear space on your 40-man and, and make a trade to do so you're typically not getting full value on that trade. You're typically getting, you know, 70 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar, something like that. Because every team across the league knows, hey, you guys need to clear the space somehow. Otherwise, you're going to have to just DFA guys who you like. And so maybe we can get kind of a discount here. You just don't have the same kind of leverage that you do for other trades. So that's kind of point A. And point B is that, and it's one we often repeat, is our prospect values are highly subject to change, uh, both off-season and in-season. We are dependent on outside sources to update their prospect valuations with what's happened in the previous season and in, you know, winter leagues, fall leagues, spring training, throughout the year, things like that. And we just don't have that level of insight. So, you know, this could be Horbit Vivas. Horbit Vivas is $8.9 million, but with a, a big red down arrow next to it because oh, he showed up to some winter league 20 pounds overweight or whatever it is. And it could be Trey Sweeney at 3.8 million with a big green up arrow next to it because, oh, you know, scouts really liked the change he made in his swing path in the last month of the season or whatever it is. And we just don't have that insight yet until we get those updates from the prospect evaluators. So that's part of it here. We're always going to be limited with our prospect valuations. Um, I've seen some comments on Twitter about, you know, how sometimes they aren't the most accurate. And we agree and acknowledge that because we have a data limitation there that we can't really overcome. And we're kind of just doing the best we can, but we have to just say, hey, we might be a little bit out of date here. And, you know, sometimes that's okay. Yeah. So on that point, the our prospect valuations are an aggregate, a weighted average of public sources. And we update when they update, so we're dependent on that. So if they're lagging behind, maybe we're still, you know, one of the data inputs is based on old information. So it may be a little bit out of date. Now, the good news is because we're aggregating, 
we may have some more up-to-date ones. So there's always a little bit of a flux, a little bit of a grayness. It's not black and white, as Josh pointed out. There's a little bit of uh, fluidity to it. And so, you know, we think we're generally in the in the ballpark, but every now and then, you know, you get an update from uh, one of the sources and they're like, whoa, he was a 55 and now he's a 40. And that's a big drop, drop in valuation and to drop in uh, evaluation as well. I saw that the other day and one of Eric Longenhagen's reports on the Yankees. So like, okay, <laughs> that changes things. But that's also why you balance it with other sources, right? And that's why you do a weighted average. So you're not that far off. So one doesn't move the needle that much. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's, you know, there's there's really no other way to do it. We're, we're not in the, it's not our job to be prospect evaluators. We're just basically taking the data that, you know, that appears out there. So, you know, but having said that, we're reasonably close most of the time. There's just error bars. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move to the next big trade. The big the big talk of the town this week is the Chris Sale deal. This came out of quite literally nowhere. I think everybody was pretty shocked by this. Um, so the, the Red Sox traded Chris Sale. We had a negative 5.7 million in surplus, along with $17 million cash to the Braves in exchange for infielder Vaughn Grissom, who we had at 17.1 million in surplus. So... This one goes through as a major overpay by Atlanta. It's about a 12 million, uh, 12 million to 17 million, roughly, uh, is the value difference. So like a five, six million dollar gap between the two sides. So not, you know, again, not not model breaking by any means, but there's there's a bit of a gap there, and I think there's a few different ways we can look at that. But basically, what's going on here is the Red Sox had just signed Lucas Giolito. It was a two-year, 38 and a half million dollar contract, which pretty close, pretty in line with what we expected, what our model expected. Our model had him at 40.2 million in fair value for those two years. So maybe just a tad below. Uh, The deal he took is maybe just a tad below our expectations, but right in line when you, on the grand scheme of things. And in doing so, they built a pretty, what looked on paper to be a pretty strong rotation. You know, it's not necessarily all of the biggest names in the world, but it projected very well. And it gave them kind of an opportunity to deal from surplus. As well, we've been hearing reports since this trade that they need to keep cutting money if they want to make other signings. You know, they, they're acting like the first luxury tax threshold is kind of a hard cap for them this offseason. And that, that seems to be coming from ownership. And so with that, if they've decided to commit to Giolito and they've decided they have enough pitching and they've decided they need to clear money, this is a way to do so. And in this deal, they end up clearing a little over $10 million in a 2024 salary by trading Sale away and, and covering a little more than half of his remaining contract with the $17 million they're sending over. And in exchange, they're kind of buying a long-term infield option in Grissom. So that's, that's where it's coming from on the Red Sox side. On the Braves side, it seems like Grissom has been the odd man out for a while now. Um, he came up and was pretty impressive off the bat, although the defense quite clearly wasn't there from day one, and there were some questions. And then he had a pretty strong spring in 2023, but he still got passed up for the starting shortstop job. They give it to Orlando Arcia, of all people, and everybody was really scratching their heads at that. Um, Arcia ended up putting in a pretty solid year above expectations, but still it seemed odd that Grissom, this top prospect who did it who was really hitting well in both spring training and the previous season was suddenly getting passed up upon by 
a career utility guy, a career bench guy, as the starting shortstop on a World Series contender. And we've talked in the past about how that can tell you something about a player's value and how a player is looked upon by his current organization could tell you something about where his value actually is and how other teams are going to view him as well. Uh, we saw this with Franklin Barreto, with Luis Urias, where their teams just clearly didn't believe in the guy, didn't give them an opportunity. And that was kind of telling as to where their value was and, and how good they really are. This seems a little bit along those lines. It seems like the Braves just never really believed in Grissom. And, you know, even even coming into this offseason, okay, he's penciled in for this kind of left field, sometimes on the infield utility role, and then they go out and trade for Jared Kelnick. And now he's the short side of a platoon in left field, and that's kind of it. And, you know, maybe spots on the infield every now and then. And that's just not the way that even, even a World Series contending team would handle a 23-year-old top prospect that they really, really believed in. And so that kind of tells you something, well, maybe they don't really, really believe in him. And so he became trade fodder. I think there's a lot of reasons to like Grissom still. I feel pretty good about the $17.1 million that we have on him, even if that does have a bit of a down arrow on it. He doesn't necessarily have a, a set position. And like I said, he hasn't really been given an opportunity to just go out there and play every day in the big leagues and show what he can do. But throughout his minor league career, he's done nothing but hit. It's pretty impressive when you <laughs> when you look at his Fangraphs page as a player who is he still hasn't turned 23. This is all in his age 20, 21, 22 seasons. And you just look at the WRC plus column, it goes in A ball, 135, high A, 195, the next year in high A, 146, double A, 147. Then he jumps up to the big leagues, 121 in a short stint in 2022. And then 2023 in triple A, 135. This guy can hit. And you just need to find a position for him and give him some time at the big league level. And I think he's going to be solid for the Red Sox. So I personally don't have any problems with our 17.1 there. I like him a lot, even if the Braves don't. And then I think that leaves Chris Sale as the one you can kind of quibble on. So I will toss it to you, John, to kind of explain how we get to that negative 5.7 for Chris Sale and, and also give your thoughts on this trade. So first of all, there was a mistake here. What I saw reported after the trade was announced was that $10 million of sales, $27.5 million salary, is deferred for 15 years. And so the Red Sox are paying $17 million to Atlanta, right? That leaves $10.5 million. Um, so the, and then, so <clears throat> 10 million is deferred until, uh, whatever, 15 years from now is 2038, 2039. And so if you use a 3% sort of inflation, historical inflation discount on that, uh, that actually changes the number. So in other words, long story short is instead of down negative 5.7, he should have been down negative three. That's our fault. We didn't catch that in the fine print. I looked at Cott's contracts after I saw that in the news and I'm like, oh, crap okay so it's a minor change but it brings it a little bit closer basically the 17 million um in cash that the red sox paid essentially pays for grissom and the only difference there is minus three on sales so that's a pretty close trade when you factor that in it was already accepted by the model at five negative 5.7 should have been negative 5.3 but we won't let that whatever <clears throat> it's fine that was our fault um but it's it, it seems like it's a fairly close trade atlanta has a history of buying pitchers that are like yeah it's close enough they overpay for relievers sometimes. It's fine. They want to win. Um, so sales, 
negative value comes from the fact that he's 35 and obviously very injury prone. Now, some of those injuries were flukes and some weren't. And so if you even if you sort of like back out the flukish flukish injuries, you can't ignore the fact that he's 35 and hasn't pitched a lot in the last few years. So, you know, so they're not really buying an innings eater. They're buying a guy who still pitches well when he's healthy, but you just can't count on, you know, 30 starts from him. You can probably count on 20 starts on, from him, in which case it's fine. Um, and, you know, the Braves want to win a World Series. They want that higher-end arm in their rotation in a playoff situation. So, you know, they're willing to pay a little bit extra, I think, for that. So, um, and, you know, we've heard, and there's reports out today that the Red Sox are trying to cut salary. So they say basically set, say save $10 million-ish in this, which frees them up to, you know, spend it on a few other things. Uh, we'll see what they do. Craig Breslow's obviously getting creative here, and good for them. So, but I do like it for the, uh, the Red Sox, not only on paper, um, but also from a fit, because they needed a second baseman. We know Grissom has defensive struggles, but second base we also know has been more of an offensive position in recent years. Even after the role change this past year, it's still largely regarded as more of a hitter's position than a fielder's position. You don't see it's the days of Colton Wong and Cesar Hernandez, who were good defenders, eh, they weren't really valued that highly because they couldn't hit it very well. You want a guy who can hit in that second base position, and and the Braves got one. Six years of control for a guy who's only 23 and has his best years ahead of him. So I think they I think they like it too. That's that's my view. Yeah, and, and where that opens them up is they do have a handful of infield prospects coming down the pipeline. And if they are going to make another trade, probably for a more cost-controlled mid-to-front-line starter, that could be where it comes from. So even if it's not necessarily Marcelo Meyer, maybe they, they're too high on him to trade him. It's a, it's a Nick York or an Emmanuel Valdez as part of that package. And now that they have another long-term infield piece in place, they have some more flexibility to move a guy like that. Mm -hmm. I think Sedan Rafaela is another name I would add that they're probably looking to move. Right. We've, we've seen reports that they're interested in Teoscar Hernandez, which, right. yes, they could use another big right-handed bat, but they reportedly see him as an outfielder. They're not looking at him as a DH. And so if he's in the outfield, that pushes one of their young guys out. And that's, as you mentioned, Sidon Rafaela. Jaron Duran had a big bounce back in 2023, but he's probably not a center fielder. And, you know, they they he, they might be able to move him. They already have Yoshida in a corner. And if they're talking about Teoscar Hernandez in the other corner, then they don't really need another corner guy in Duran. And then uh, on the lower end, Willier Abreu came on uh, late in the season and impressed. I think he was part of the Christian Vasquez trade, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to the Astros. And so latest reports are saying that one or more of those three could be traded. I think Duran makes the most sense just based on the team fit and based on where, you know, where he is from a value perspective. If they, if they really want to get a frontline guy, he's in kind of the thirties range in value, whereas Rafaela's in like the 13 to 15 ish range last I checked. And so he's going to help them along that path a, a lot better. Yeah. So, you know, one thing about the numbers here. So in our model, what we've found over the years is that it takes a little time, and this is not breaking any news, but it takes a little time for a prospect to typically establish himself, right? And sometimes they go through ups and downs. But then usually by year two, maybe sometime in year three, they figured it out, and then they're off and running. And yet they, at that point, they still have four or five years of control. And so that's when you know you got something, and that's when their value is high. So Duran has figured it out. 
At least he, he judged it on his 2023. He obviously struggled before that. And so now he's in a good spot. And that's why his value went up because you can rely on that a little bit more. He's been through, it's a game of adjustments, as we all know. You know, he's adjusted and it's good. Now, there could be more adjustments coming. So it's not totally set that he's going to be off and running from here. But it's good news that he that he had a really good bounce back season. He's he's kind of advanced to that stage of his career where he's like past the sort of initial sort of break in period. The other guys have not. Rafaela has not really established himself yet. Julio Abreu has obviously um, in his call up in his short time there. He hit well, but oftentimes we see sort of a, a regression happening where pitchers figure him out and then you know they struggle a little bit. That's in fact what happened with Juan Grissom this year. But having struggled a little bit, they also may, in fact, have learned from that mistake. Game, the game is also a game of failures, as we all know, and you learn from those mistakes and you figure it out. So they're all going through this process. Some are figured out more than others have, and that's why Duran's a little bit higher because he's figured out a little bit more. He's a little step ahead of the other guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and he's kind of in that perfect sweet spot right now where he hasn't fully graduated from from to, to you know full-on big leaguer he's still kind of in that tweener range so he still does get a bit of a boost at least from that prospect status that he had coming up you know there's there's still the pedigree that gets baked into how you look at a guy like that yeah. um so he has that as long as, as well as the solid baseline that he put together last year so i i think he makes a lot of sense i think it's it, they're gonna make some sort of another move here especially if they're looking at teoscar hernandez um, and then the other thing that's been reported is that they're potentially looking to offload more cash. And the two most obvious ways to do that would be Kenley Jansen, who's a reliever making 16 million this year. And, and he's not the Kenley Jansen of old. The Kenley Jansen of old would have been worth 16 million or more. Um, we have him a, a, a few million underwater at this point because he is into that kind of mid to late 30s stage of his career. And he's still solid, but he, he's no he's no lockdown closer he's no all-star um so they can they can probably find a taker for him if they eat some of that money or kick in a prospect um but th- he doesn't have positive surplus right now and then the other name that came up was trevor story which is going to be an even tougher sell because his start to his red sox tenure has not gone well at all he was just kind of okay in 2022 uh, he only played half the season. He was a league average bat. Um, they they kind of expected more from that. They were hoping for more than that. And then uh, he missed time with injury and came back in 2023. And his defense was great, but the bat wasn't there at all. So he's pretty solidly underwater. It would take a lot for them to move him. And even if they do, then who's playing shortstop? So it seems like Jansen, if they really do need to clear more money, it seems like Jansen is the next guy to go. Yeah. And so it makes you wonder, like, what is the Red Sox strategy? Is it? I don't get the sense that it's all in, right? I think when they're like everybody else, they're trying to be, you know, sustainable, uh, you know, competitively sustainable, you know, what is sustainable success, right? So that means, yeah, we're trying to be better, but we also want to look at the long term. So they're not just all in in the short term, like the Braves are, like the Dodgers are. They're, you know, those teams look at the long term as well, but they're obviously they they really want to win this coming year. Whereas the Red Sox were like, yeah, we're not sure we're all in this coming year but we want to get better so you know with jansen you know he's only got one year left of control you know and he's a, typically a closer back-end guy so like you don't necessarily need that if you're not going all in right so strategically it makes sense to trade jansen now we do have field value at 13.9 so 
you know, and his 16 salary means he has negative 2.1. So if they kick in a couple of million, they get a minor prospect back. You know, they kick in more, they get a little bit more back. So they can kind of swing a deal creatively where they save some money and maybe get something back for the longer term, depending on how much they want to spend, how much they want to kick in. And because Jansen is still serviceable, I mean, we do estimate that $13.9 million, that's what he would get if he were a free agent. You know, teams would be interested in that. So a team that's has designs on winning in 2024, you know, should be open to that deal. So I think that's a much more sort of, you know, obvious play for them. I don't see Story being moved because he'd be a, a sell-low candidate right now. I think you want to see what you got in him. You've just traded for Grissom to play second, which means Story can lock down short, assuming he's healthy. I know he had a surgery. I know he had arm issues. So this is his chance to kind of bounce back. So I don't think Story is the right answer. I think Jansen is the answer if that's what they want to do. Yeah, I think what we're kind of seeing here is maybe Craig Breslow kind of clearing house of all of the <laughs> all of the questionable decisions yeah. from from the Heim Bloom tenure. You know, the Chris Sale extension was just poorly timed, and I mean that's a little bit of hindsight being twenty twenty, right? But it was it was a a big extension right before twenty twenty. Then twenty twenty happens, he doesn't pitch. Twenty twenty one, he pitched nine games. Twenty twenty two, he pitched two games, and then. 2023 he, he made 20 starts and, and it's, it's his most complete season since that extension was signed and so that obviously did not go well for them at all again bit of a hindsight thing he had been surprisingly durable for the handful of seasons leading up to that and it just all kind of fell apart um so so i don't know how much you can truly blame bloom for that but there was some kind of consternation with the fan base around sale and so you could view this as Breslow trying to kind of appease the fans there, you know, operating under financial constraints and using that as an opportunity to offload a kind of questionable contract with some controversy around it. I could squint and see Kenley Jansen being a similar deal where I know I was scratching my head when they gave him two years, 32 million last off season. Um, he pitched well enough in 2023, like you said, that it it's not entirely underwater you know it's, it's just a few million under and they can work their way out of it but it still did seem odd at the time and still is kind of weird that they gave him that much money for his age 35 and 36 seasons and then plenty of questions about this trevor story contract as well and what it meant with letting xander bogarts walk and and, and things like that so there's there's a, of an approach to this there's a narrative you can build here where it's craig breslow you know clearing house of the contracts that he doesn't like that the fans don't like and, you know, going out and spending in free agency and making what he perceives to be as smarter free agent decisions, whether that's Jordan Montgomery or Blake Snell or Teoscar Hernandez or whoever it is, or, or making a big trade for a Braxton Garrett or a Jesus Lazardo or one of the Mariners pitchers. Um, there, there's options here, but it's it really feels like, you know, <laughs> it almost feels like a video game, like a out of the park baseball or MLB the show or something like that, where you start a new year. You start start a new year with a team and you go, okay, I don't like that they have this guy way underwater here and I want to get him out of here. So I'm going to trade him and a prospect and goodbye. I'm going to go sign the guy that I like instead. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, again, could yeah. just be a narrative thing, but I don't know. I, I like that story. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> no, it works for me. And I'm sure, you know, Alex Anthopoulos would raise his hand and say, yeah, I can play that game too. Yep, what an excellent transition you've just given us. Because uh, the next thing we want to talk pleasure. about briefly here uh, is, of course, the brave side of this, which we haven't really gotten to, other than uh, the the Von Grissom part of it is 
they're continuing, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier with the Dodgers, uh, they're continuing to kind of stockpile these higher variance, higher upside arms, um, Sale being one of them. Uh, that, that's part of the narrative here for the Braves. And the other part is what they're doing with all these, <laughs> these dead contracts and what they've been doing all offseason, acquiring underwater players and flipping them around and back and forth. And so we already talked about the Jared Kelnick saga on the last episode. Since then, they made one other move on top of this Chris Sale one. Uh, back on December 15th, they acquired Matt Carpenter at negative 4.7 in surplus. Left-handed pitcher Ray Kerr at 4.5 million. And Cash, which was reportedly 1.5 million from the Padres in exchange for outfielder Drew Campbell, who we didn't have yet in the system. Uh, but that one goes through as fair. Campbell's likely one of those onesie twosie, you know, very low value fringe prospect types. So ends up being just a little bit of surplus headed to the Braves in Kerr plus $1.5 million in cash. Um, and then they reportedly at the time were looking for a new home for Carpenter after that trade and like they did with all of the underwater contracts from the Kelnick series of deals. They couldn't find one though. Um, they ended up just DFAing him and releasing him. So uh, effectively it turned into them buying Ray Kerr at the cost of a few million dollars and a fringe outfield prospect from their system to add another left-handed relief slash depth starting pitcher. Um, so so <laughs> they, they did that. They did this with Chris Sale taking on some money here for an underwater guy, although, um, as we discussed, the Red Sox paid him positive. So what it seems like to me, when you kind of look at the totality of the Braves offseason so far, is, you know, you know that their lineup was pretty set coming into the offseason. You you look to that left field spot as one they can maybe upgrade, but otherwise they're pretty set. Um, you, you looked at their bench, and, you know, maybe they need some help there, but that's the easiest spot on the roster to address. And then you looked at their pitching staff, and, you know, pretty solid, but they could use more depth. And what they've done this offseason is instead of going out, and, 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 and to be clear, they did try initially at Aaron Nola, and I think they tried at Sonny Gray as well. Um, but when those guys didn't come their way, when they, they weren't able to sign those guys, they didn't then pivot and go down the line and say, okay, well, now we're going to hand $200 million to Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery or really push hard for Yamamoto or anything like that. They said, okay, we didn't get our top guys. Let's pivot and use our financial resources in another way. And that's exactly what they've done here with all of the flip-flopping. They've <laughs> traded around, you know, uh, it, it's kind of the red paperclip approach like we talked about last time and just trying to find value wherever they can, trying to find field value, trying to reallocate bad contracts and turn them into ones that better fit their roster needs. And in the process, they've spent a little bit of money and added Jared Kelnick to their lineup and Chris Sale to the rotation and Ray Kerr to their pitching staff, um, not to mention Aaron Bummer and you know David Fletcher is a potential bench option for them now. And I... I think you, you kind of got to tip your cap. You know, it's it's a lot of work to make for what probably turn out to be incremental upgrades, but it's it's zigging when everybody else zags, right? Is, is that the, <laughs> the, the analogy? Is it everybody else is kind of waiting in line at the front of the starting pitching market so that they can get their guy or get the next guy in line because they just want unarm. Meanwhile, Alex Anthopoulos is just, making 14 different trades he's putting on his jerry depoto hat and ending up with a roster that's probably a win or two better than the one that he had coming into the offseason 
um, and, but it's on his own terms. You know, it's making his own deals instead of waiting for whatever the free agents dictate that, that he needs to pay them. I have a lot to say about this. Let me start with the Matt Carpenter trade. Um, so first of all, it's a creative way to use financial resources to buy essentially young players. That's what he did with Kellenic and that's what he did with Ray Kerr. It's another sort of, you know, for those people who sometimes question our, our foundational sort of model of basing most of these trades on surplus value, um, it's yet another sort of indication that that's how front offices work, basically. You know, you trade a negative surplus guy uh, like Carpenter, you have to add positive value in the form of Ray Kerr's surplus in addition to a couple uh, 1.5 million in cash in order to get over the get over the positive line. And, and, you know, and so that's basically saying we're working on surplus value. So, and this is how most trades work. So like we said, so it's a validation point on that. Uh, but it's also sort of Alex Anthopoulos being creative with surplus value, basically buying and selling it across the board. So he basically bought Kellenic and he basically bought Ray Kerr. Um, took him a lot of moves to make that, but he did it and he solved his left field problem, he hopes, with a controllable asset. Brought in another hard-throwing lefty in the bullpen, which he's been working on with Aaron Bummer and a few other signings. So, like, that's, I think it's kind of a master class in kind of working the angles um, and, you, you know, using some financial resources, but not a huge amount because there was money involved going back and forth. There was money in the Chris Sale. Like, you didn't have to spend that much, you know. So, you know, it's, it's and he's getting controllable assets out of it as well. So... You know, I really think it's, you know, it's a masterclass. Uh, I love watching this. Um, the one thing I will say is kind of funny, like he ended up flipping most of the assets like Max Stasi and a few others and Evan White. But he did end up kind of holding the bag on David Fletcher, which is like, okay, <laughs> he's our utility infielder. Like you're making a lot of money for a utility infielder, but like you can only only play the hot potato game so much. You're going to end up with Carpenter and him releasing him or David Fletcher, even if you don't really want David Fletcher, you got him. So... There is that as well. I think of the group, though, he at least fits their roster the cleanest right now, where, you know, you don't need another Max Stassi. You don't need another catcher. You have Murphy and Darno. Max Stassi is not displacing either of those guys, and you really don't need a, th- a three-catcher uh, roster going. So, yeah, you, you get him out of town. You don't need Evan White. He's kind of almost entirely dead money. He's shown no real aptitude at the big league level. He's probably a total bust. He's totally underwater. He's not going to help your big league team at all. All he's going to do is fill a spot on your AAA roster. You don't need him. But at least Fletcher, with where they are right now, with, as I mentioned, they don't really have a bench right now. Like, you could do worse. Like, is he worth the money that he's getting paid? Certainly not. Not at all. No, not even close. But if you're going to be shuffling around this bad money, you might as well shuffle it to something that fits your roster better. And I think that's what they did. And I think uh, like you're saying, yeah, it's, it's really impressive. And, and I got to tip my cap to it. Yeah. I mean, they had Charlie Culberson on some of those good years and he was basically the same player, right? <laughs> Doesn't hit much, but he can play around the infield and Fletcher's the same way. So, okay, fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go ahead and shift within the division here. The Mets acquired, Right-handed pitcher Adrian Hauser at 5.9 million in surplus, as well as outfielder Tyrone Taylor at 1.6 million from the Brewers in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Coleman Crow at 1.6 million. So pretty sizable gap here. It's accepted by the model as a moderate overpay by Milwaukee. It's hard to view this as anything other than a salary dump, where the Brewers, you know, they 
they have <laughs> they're they're in an interesting spot this offseason. And we talked about them on previous episodes where they lost Woodruff at the end of the year and ended up non-tendering him. Um, they've been kind of this middling team that just kind of coasts along in the NL Central for a few years now, but they have some serious issues to address on their roster if they want to take steps forward. Right now, it might be kind of a transition year for them. They have Jackson Chorio coming up. They have a whole wave of young outfielders, Sal Frelick, Joey Weimer, Garrett Mitchell, um, Bryce Terang on the infield. Like they have, they have an interesting crop of young talent, but they're in kind of this in-between stage where none of it is quite established yet. And so you wonder if 2024 might be a year to establish that. But at the same time, it's the walk year for Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas, who are two of their best players. So it's decision time. It's a franchise that never really spends that much um, on its payroll. And so they need to shuffle around finances as well, especially if they want to think about main, uh, about retaining either of those two guys. And so the way that they choose to do it here is offloading Adrian Hauser, who was projected to earn $5 million in his last year of arbitration, as well as Tyrone Taylor, who's entering his RB years cheap, but they have plenty of outfielders there. He was uh, kind of a kind of a surplus to them. And so they, they send those two guys to the Mets in exchange for really a lottery ticket pitching prospect here. Um, Coleman Crow had a little bit of hype. Uh, he was acquired by the Mets in the Eduardo Escobar deal from the Angels. Uh, but since since they acquired him, he underwent Tommy John surgery and then went unprotected and unselected in the Rule 5 draft. So it's pretty clear there's not a ton of value here. You know, even if you like the arm, there's there's... I think the Brewers should have been able to get more here. Um, but especially given where the market was at the time, you know, a lot of a lot of the higher market teams, higher money teams are waiting on the free agent market to move. This was this was kind of mid-December. And so they were waiting for the starting pitching market to move. I don't know if they wanted to commit $5 million to a back-end arm in Adrian Hauser at that time. Um, and so if the Brewers decided, hey, we need to move this guy, we want to clear some roster space, they added a couple other kind of lower tier arms around that time as well. And so it's it's another kind of lack of leverage type situation. And the Mets and Steve Cohen and the endless pocketbooks there are really taking advantage of it. So I think this is really good move for the Mets. You know, I can't really fault the Brewers too heavily because it is just a back-end arm and just a fourth or fifth platoon outfielder. But you'd really expect them to get more here. And it's kind of, I don't think it bodes well for the rest of their offseason. Yeah, this one puzzles me a little bit because back-end arms have value, as we've seen in the, in the marketplace. Now, we're not seeing a huge amount of overpays, but we're seeing fair value pretty much across the board for the the Kyle Gibsons and Frankie Montezes of the world. And so, not that they're back-end, uh, but Hauser's pretty established as like a 4-5 or five guy, right? But... You know, we know every team, especially contenders, need to fill like 800 innings of starting pitching, you know, before they start taxing their bullpen. Hauser's an innings eater. So you can even on a good team, he's a five. On a mediocre team, he's a four. And that has some value, right? Um, So I don't get why this one is basically a dump, is basically a giveaway. Uh, What I can also shake is, I'm not throwing any conspiracy theories out there, but, you know, David Stearns used to be the head guy in Milwaukee, and Matt Arnold was his right-hand man. So the two know each other very well. Stearns obviously knows Hauser and Taylor very well. So, like, okay, they're friends. And so they're making a deal that seems a little bit out of balance. What to make of that? I have no idea. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Probably am. Um, but it feels like it's like a, is, that, is there a 
favor trading thing going on here? Is there another move to come where I say, okay, in totality now that makes sense? I don't know. This one doesn't make any sense to me. On paper, it's not that bad, but, you know, okay, it's a salary dump. It's all I got. Um, but if it's a salary dump, why are the Brewers uh, still holding on to Burns and Andamas, who are in their walk years, and they could get a ton for it? If they're going to dump salary, are they going to re... I, I keep saying this. Are they going to rebuild or contend? I don't know. They're in the NL Central. Well, it makes sense, Josh. I don't get it. What are they doing? I don't get it. I sure <laughs> don't get it either because it's not like this is a roster that, you know, the rotation is full. We were going to use Hauser as a swing man, so let's just offload him and, and use that $5 million elsewhere. That's not the case here at all. Their rotation right now on roster resource is Corbin Burns, who might get traded, Freddie Peralta, who typically has has his share of injuries throughout the course of a season. Uh, Wade Miley, who is Wade Miley. Colin Ray, who they gave a, a guaranteed deal to uh, right at the beginning of the offseason here, and he's fine, but I don't think he's a guy that you need to give a rotation spot to. And Joe Ross, who is interesting in his own right. You know, he, he came back from, I believe it was his second Tommy John, and he didn't make it back to the big leagues last year, but he made it... Um, up to AAA with the Giants, and he was reportedly throwing harder than he ever had. Um, so I don't mind that as a flyer for like a bullpen spot. And, and they gave him a guaranteed major league deal, but it's I think it's one of those split contracts where he could go back down to the minors. Um, but right now he's penciled in as their number five, and I don't <laughs> I don't get it. It's not like they have a ton else on the farm either. Um, Aaron Ashby, 2023 was a lost year for him with a shoulder injury. We'll see what he looks like when he comes back here. I know they, they like Robert Gasser. He was part of the trade package for Josh Hader, if I'm not mistaken, but that's just one guy. <laughs> like it's, it's not yeah. like they were, they were really, you know, nobody was really knocking down the door and forcing them to trade Hauser to open up a rotation spot. Yeah. I don't and, get it. I, I get the Tyrone Taylor part of it. hundred percent. No right. qualms yep. there whatsoever, yep. but they should have gotten more for Hauser if they really felt like they needed to trade him. And they could have had Coleman Crow for free. He was a rule five guy. No one wanted him. No one picked him. And they're, <laughs> I don't get it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so let's assume they don't make any other moves. And so they're going as rotation basically of, of Burns, Peralta, and Pray for Rain. <laughs> and maybe they make it, if they're in it, they maybe try to make an acquisition at the deadline. And so, but but they're only two deep in quality guys, and the rest. And then they've got Devin Williams on the back of the bullpen, and not much else, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they've had offensive issues. They've got some young players in the outfield, in particular, who maybe can take a step up this year. But that's a lot of ifs, right? So, like, what are you doing? Are you just playing the maybe we'll try it game, and our owner says we have to save some money? Maybe that's all it is. I don't know, but. But the weird thing is, the Reds are making moves. They're looking like they want to contend in that NL Central that is up for the taking. We're still waiting on the Cubs to make more moves. We got a, I got a funny feeling there's there's something coming there. So, like, are you trying to contend or not? You lost Craig Council. What are you doing? I still, I, I'm going to continue to say this, Josh. I know I'm a broken record, but I don't understand what the Brewers are doing. I'm with you. I am with you. I, I think there's a way that they can finish out this off season that things make sense. You know, maybe they, maybe they keep burns and they sit around and wait for kind of the tail end of the free agent pitching market and scoop up a guy or two from that range to fill out the rotation. Okay, fine. 
Um, they, they still could really use more offense here. I mean, I know, I know they're expecting a step forward from Sal Frelick. They're expecting Jackson Chorio to make an impact in his debut, Garrett Mitchell. But right now, they also have Andrew Monasterio and Jake Bowers penciled into their starting lineup. And uh, Luis Urias, our old buddy, is their third baseman. <laughs> so like, that's your third baseman. Okay. No, wait. No, Luis. No, that's it. No, no, yeah, no. He's, he's a Mariner. Mariner. That's what I'm sorry. I keep yep. thinking he's on the Brewers. I'm, just, I'm sorry. That it. <laughs> well, they, yeah. they could use him. They could yes, sure they use could. him. He'd be an upgrade at this point, which is concerning. <laughs> Um, yeah, their, their offensive additions this off season have been Jake Bowers and Eric Haas. Yeah. And that's not what you're looking for when it's a, when it's a Brewers team that really needed more offense last yeah. season. So yeah. I, I get it. It's, it's December 31st. As we speak right now, there's still time to finish this out, but clock's ticking. And especially if you're going to trade Burns, you, you're going to want to do that. You know, I, I know you want to wait out the market and, and potentially, you know, wait until Snell signs and Montgomery signs, and then you're really holding the last true frontline guy, and you can maybe try and leverage that into a stronger return. But that also gives you less time to build out the rest of your roster after that point. Because, you know, I don't think it's a full rebuild. I don't, I, I think it's gonna, at worst, they're looking at like a transition year or two because, they have all their big league, all their young talent is is almost big league ready or is going to be big league ready in 2024. And they still have Christian Yelich, who just had a nice bounce back year. William Contreras is in his prime. Like, they don't need to tank for four years to get back to the postseason, especially in the NL Central. They just maybe need a reset year or two. And so I think they're still going to try and put together a reasonable, respectable team in 2024. And so if you're going to trade Corbin Burns and still try to do that, I think you, you got to trade Burns sooner than later. That's at least my take. Um, and then that that's not even to mention whatever's going on there with William Adamas. Uh, but who knows? Maybe by the next time we'll record, uh, both of those two will be Dodgers. Yeah, and they do have Aaron Ashby, who's had been out with some injuries. I believe he's coming back this year. And, you know, he's got four years of control. So maybe they're counting on him. Maybe they know, you know, that he's doing well. And so maybe that makes sense if he... He comes back and he's your number three starter. They do have a really good, interesting prospect who's young, Jacob Mizorowski, coming. But they don't have a lot of pitching that's sort of major league ready beyond that that I can see. So uh, <laughs> unless we're missing something, you know, uh, yeah, they got some work to do. Absolutely. All right, let's fly through a couple minor trades here and then get into some signings. Um, the Guardians acquired outfielder Estevan Florial at zero million, zero point zero million in surplus. Uh, from the Yankees in exchange for right-handed pitcher Cody Morris at 1.2 million. Um, notable here because Floreal was a prospect at some point, not a, not a top, top prospect, but he was a name that Yankees fans knew. Um, he went up and down a bunch. He was DFA'd. No real value left. Um, I guess good for the Yankees for, <laughs> for turning him into a pitcher with at least some, some level of surplus, but still Morris is just a depth arm. He's 27. He's kind of a swing man-ish type, probably yeah. a reliever. Nothing to write home about, but the Yankees have done well with some of these scrap heap pitchers, and so maybe there's something there. And the Guardians always need more offensive depth, especially in the outfield, so maybe they see something with Florial. That's that's all I got on this one. Yeah, so the only thing I would add is Florial is out of options, and so you typically get you know traded if you're out of options and you have no place on the roster. And so that really hurts your value as well. So they basically were up against a rock, a rock and a hard place there with the Yankees were with Florial. So he had to get moved. Um, but but this is another sort of thing where you sometimes hear fans on Twitter particularly say, oh, he never got a chance. Their teams know. We've talked about this a lot. Their teams know what they have. 
if he doesn't give a chance, it means they don't have confidence in him. And, you know, they they gave him a couple of stints here and there, a cup of coffee here and there, but he didn't perform very well. And they kind of know what he is. And so you have to read into that. So that's why we have the clock ticking in our model, basically. You have two years to establish yourself, and then you run out of options, and then you're not established, and then you're gone. That's pretty much what happened here. Um, and, yeah, Morris has options, so he's just a depth guy. They traded away Vasquez, Brito, and a few other guys recently in their depth arms. So he's kind of a little finger in the dike there with depth so they need that they need more of that actually yeah yeah definitely all right let's run through a slew of royals transactions here uh the, the brewers acquired right-handed pitcher taylor clark at 1.6 million in surplus from the royals in exchange for right-handed pitcher ryan brady and infielder cam devaney uh, those two weren't in the system but they're both depth prospects this is just kind of a yeah. a roster move it, uh, all of these moves are connected to signings that the Royals made and needed to clear 40 man space. So let me, let me get that out there. Sure. Um, so let me just fly through the, the next one would be if I'm scrolling, uh, the pirates acquire outfielder Edward Olivares at 0.8 million in surplus from the Royals in exchange for infielder Davies Nadal. Uh, also not yet in the system, but again, margin of errors. It's well within, well within our margin. Um, and then the Orioles acquire right-handed pitcher Jonathan Heasley at 0.0 million from the Royals in exchange for right-handed pitcher Cesar Espinal. So these are just three fringe players, three depth players um, that the Royals, instead of just cutting loose from their roster when they made some of these free agent signings that we're going to talk about here in a second, um, instead they flipped these guys for, for lower-level lower prospects that didn't need to be placed on the 40-man. So that's kind of... All this is, you, you do see them giving up a little bit more value in these deals, like we've talked about in the past, where once there's a 40-man crunch, you kind of lose leverage, and, and you might just be getting 50 cents on the dollar or whatever. But uh, at this level, I don't think they're, I don't think they're splitting hairs too much over some of these guys. No, it's just churn. Yeah, let's keep moving. Exactly. And so let's let's get into the guys that actually uh, took up these <laughs> these spaces on the roster. So the Royals had a bit of a shopping spree before the holidays. They signed Seth Lugo to a three-year, $45 million deal. They signed Michael Waka to a two-year, $32 million deal. They signed Chris Stratton to a two-year, $8 million deal. And I think we talked about them signing Will Smith on the last episode as well. Um, so that's four veteran arms that they added, um, not to mention that they signed outfielder Hunter Renfro for two years and $13 million as well. Um, most of these vary in line with the model. So Michael Waka, we the model had him at 31.2 over two years, and he got 32, so right in line there. Renfro, the model had him at 12.4, and he got 13 over his two years. And then the the Lugo deal was the one that was a little bit off. Um, we had three years of Lugo at 38.4, whereas they gave him 45, so a bit of a gap there. Um, it kind of speaks to the difficulty with some of these guys. We talked about it with Nick Martinez, where these like swingman types, where it's hard to really... You know, it's hard to place a firm expectation on how teams are going to evaluate these guys and if they're going to look at them as full-time starters or if they're going to bake in some of that relief risk or, or even just plan for them to be swinging back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation. Um, so it's it's I think that's probably the gap there um, is, is some of that uncertainty. And it also could just be a bit of an overpay. You know, that, that happens sometimes. So I'm not losing any sleep over it. Same, a little bit of both. I mean, it also speaks to the trademark. I mean, sorry, the starting pitching market where, you know, you're reaching a little bit to try to say, yeah, he's kind of a swing man, but we think he's a starter. And so we're going to try him. 
So, you know, there's a little bit of that going on. We're giving him the benefit of the doubt if he can, if he can start. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any, any comments? So, I mean, I know these are kind of, it's a string of meh trades to, to clear roster space for a string of kind of not mediocre pitchers, but kind of middle of the pack, like nothing, nothing spectacular. Do you have a, a, a thumb on the pulse here with the Royals? Yeah. I mean, so I think the key point here is, you know, they were sold to, uh, a new owner about a year ago, a guy who had been a part owner of Cleveland, the guardians. And then he's really a Kansas city guy and he bought the Royals and he's made some changes, you know, in the last couple of years. And he sort of waited out a little bit after he fired the last GM and, and made Piccolo, the Piccolo, the, the new guy. And basically said, okay, settle in, bring Bobby Witt up. Let's see how he does bring Melendez and Pasquantino up and those guys. And so, but then they still didn't really move the needle all that. I mean, Witt's great, but but the other guys either got hurt or didn't perform well. And so like, okay, now what? And they really start, and I think they're conscious of the fan base and wanting to sort of at least make some noise somehow. And they realize they're also in a weak AL Central. And so I think they're just trying to stir the pot. And they said, okay, what if we sign some guys? And so just to kind of infuse some energy, maybe get some veterans who can kind of lead the young guys a little bit. Keep in mind also that they have a terrible farm. Um, so it's not going to, it's not like they're waiting for a whole bunch of new talent to kind of spring up. They're basically having to sort of say, okay, well, if we can't grow it, then we have to sort of buy it a little bit. Maybe they, you know, maybe Piccolo will make some smart moves in terms of rebuilding the farm. But right now they're kind of, They've got nothing. They've got no farm, no baseball, no major league, you know, a bad major league team and a bad farm, which is kind of the worst of all possible worlds. So at least the owner is saying, okay, spend a little money, see if that makes a difference. I think that's what's going on here. They are also, and I'm trying to look this up to, yes, they're looking for public funding for a new stadium. And so I wonder if that's part of the calculus here as well, is if we're going to be asking the taxpayers to help buy us a new stadium, we can't be putting another hundred loss team on the field in 2023. Will they probably still put a, another hundred loss team on the field in 2023? I'd say it's somewhat likely, but this is at least a step in the right direction. You you look at their rotation now. Cole Reagans was a huge breakout last year. There's a lot to like about him. Uh, Michael Walker and Seth Lugo that they just added, both really solid arms. Like they're nothing to write home about, but they're they're solid mid rotation guys. That's why they got the money that they did. And then Brady Singer, there's a lot to like about him, even though though his 2023 was a bit of a mess. And Jordan Lyles is Jordan Lyles to round things out. Um, so that's not a bad rotation at all. And they have, like you said, like they have a lot of young talent that, that has made its way to the big leagues and it's time to show up kind of, you know. I'm not looking at this roster and seeing one that's certainly going to contend by any means. I think they'd need a lot to go right just to you know, get into that kind of wildcard fringe, even in the AL Central. I, I, I think it's a long shot for sure, but there's there's at least a path there. And before these signings, I don't think there was one. So it's an improvement and it doesn't break the bank. And it's, it's probably going to help them with some of their off-field endeavors. And I think that's what I got on this one. Okay. I got nothing else to add, but it's a good point. I think that, yeah, I think the stadium issue is is a key driver. The new owner wants to stir the pot a little bit, wants to create excitement about a new stadium. So they're getting some new blood in. I think that's what, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm, I alluded to this earlier, but the Giants did sign Jung-Hoo Lee to a six-year deal, outfielder. Um, it's a six-year, $113 million contract. 
um, as an opt-out after the fourth year, and they do also have to pay a posting fee to Lee's previous KBO team. It's almost $19 million on the posting fee. Um, Lee's 25 years old. He profiles as, as kind of a contact and, and defense-type outfielder, although there are some kind of um, competing evaluations of his center field defense. Um, and he's shown power in the past, but it's kind of fluctuated and he's not a big raw power guy. And I guess signing in San Francisco, that's not going to do him any favors there either. Um, he's not necessarily the big signing the Giants have been going for the last handful of years with Judge and Harper and Otani and Correa and everything going on in Yamamoto. He's not that degree, but he is an upgrade. He's 25. He seems like he's going to be their center field solution. I, you know, every time I see articles about him and trying to come up with a comp from him the name that pops into my mind is brett gardner maybe not quite as fast as as you know peak brett gardner but it seems like he'll have a similar profile to him and i think that's a really valuable player and is six years 113 million dollars is that a decent chunk of money to pay for that especially with the uncertainty of a guy coming over from korea and and we've seen in the past some korean hitters take more time to adjust than than others yeah there's risk here but I think it's it's a smart deal. I, I, I like the player. I like the profile. And we'll kind of just have to see how it goes. Um, and, and as I did mention before with Yamamoto, we don't have a value on Lee because uh, we don't have the statistical baseline to put him into the model yet. Uh, but we'll just kind of have to see how his major league career starts out and go from there. Yeah. Two things. One is I think he's going to be fun to watch. I think Giants fans will be delighted because you know he's he's got that profile he's going to get on base he's going to steal he's, he's fast he's a good center fielder so that is always fun and but you know the second point is it's hard to shake the impression that the giants are still sort of wallowing in me too mediocrity they're not getting superstars they're just getting okay guys you know and this is yet another one like i have nothing against league i'm maybe i'm underestimating him but but you know, he's just sort of adding to the mix of Austin Slater and Conforto and Hanniger, all of whom have been kind of, the latter two have been disappointments. And you've got some, you know, they're still mixing and matching and platooning, and there's not really a superstar. Like, so, like, I don't get the sense that anything has changed in that regard, and it may not at this point in the offseason. Um, so, yeah, okay, maybe he'll be fun to watch. Yeah, it, it, it. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I, they obviously have to do more, right? It's They've been treading water for too long as an organization, and that's not necessarily, you know, entirely their fault. They they were competitive on a lot of different free agents, and they, they almost signed Carlos Correa, if, if you remember. <laughs> like, we don't have time to get into it, and it's not necessarily within the scope of the podcast, but the whole you know San Francisco debate of whether the city is holding them back. Uh, John, you and I are both Bay Area guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, that's not it. I, I no, think you can go no. case by case here and, and see. You know, Aaron Judge just preferred the Yankees and used the Giants as leverage. Good for him. Uh, Carlos Correa did was on track to sign with the Giants. He picked the Giants and they backed out. Shohei Otani, he had an opportunity to pitch for the best organization or play for the best organization in baseball, one of the best run organizations in baseball. And he chose that over a team that just won 80 games. Like that's none of that has anything to do with San Francisco. That's it's about the quality of play on the field. And they're doing a lot of churning their wheels and and treading water there. And I think this move is a step in the right direction toward actually building a team where people want to sign, 
but they're going to need to do more here. Yep. And they're going to have the whole Bay Area to themselves if all things go in that direction. Yeah. So they've got plenty of room to work with here. Yep, exactly. All right, uh, let's stick within the NL West. And the D-backs re-signed Lourdes Gurriel Jr. It's a three-year, $42 million contract. Um, it does have an opt-out after the second year and a club option for 2027 worth $14 million. Um, this one, the uh, the model projected him for three years at $32.1 million, and instead this deal is for $42 million, so there's a bit of a gap there, $10 million. Um, it seems like... You know, part of that can be attributed to the World Series. I don't want to call it a hangover effect, but I think there's been studies done about how World Series winners, especially, but also maybe participants, um, they, they tend to bring the band back together. You know, they, they thought the vibes were good. They liked Guriel. He was a big part of the clubhouse. They have this influx of cash from the deep playoff run. Might as well spend it somewhere. They needed an outfield bat. They liked Guriel. The fit made sense. Why not just do it? Why why haggle with him over a few million? You know, why pay a ton more potentially for a Teoscar Hernandez when you don't know how well that fit's going to go? Things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, a $10 million overpay potentially over the course of three years that could be kind of offset by some of the intangibles like that's not gonna that's not gonna cause any huge problems. I, I know a lot of D-backs fans that I'm friends with are, are really happy they brought him back, and so that could be <laughs> worth something off the field. I, I mean, I, I think from a pure statistical standpoint, yeah, they 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 paid more than they needed to here, but I also don't think it's the biggest deal in the world. I totally agree. He's not like a superstar. He's okay, you know. He plays left field, which is not a high value position, first of all. So defensively, he's not getting any credit offensively he's just kind of he does everything slightly average or above average which is not bad but he's not like a star so but you know arizona will sometimes overpay for guys they like so and that's fine and they want to maybe keep the chemistry together as you said so i'm totally fine it's a you know there's variance there um we're doing pretty well across the board with our free agent model but um that one is a little bit off but you can kind of see it yeah yeah i don't count that one against the model by any means i, I think that's just a a one-off um mariners signing mitch garver to a two-year 24 million dollar deal uh this is right what you were saying is right in line we we had him at two years and 24 million um uh, according to the model as well so this is pretty perfect he's more of a dh than a catcher at this point but he is a pretty solid dh when he's healthy and the mariners needed that kind of power they needed that kind of slugging especially after trading kelnick and eugenio suarez away so i like him as a fit i still don't really know what the what the mariners are doing on a grander scale i don't know how they make it out of this offseason with a team that's better than last year's team and i, I know that they've been having issues with their uh, with their rsn I, I believe they're now the owners of root sports uh, and and that's a whole ordeal over there that again we don't really have time to get into so they are a little bit strapped for cash on that front um i think i think given the upside here with garver you know he had an 870 ops in half a season last year if you can get lucky and get him healthy through a, a full season with that kind of production i think you're getting good bang for your buck here um but i also think that the bottom half of that lineup is terrible and they still have a lot of work to do to improve on the 2023 team yeah i mean I, what I've heard is that the um, 
the the cable companies basically are um, asking people to pay more for their packages that include the root network, and so they're losing a lot. There's a lot of cord cutting going on in that area. Um, so, in other words, they're not getting as much revenue, even with. And then there's there's the fact that they're paying more to own it, but there's also the fact that they're not getting that much in return. So it's causing a bit of a budget issue. Um, so I think they're trying to thread the needle. They're they obviously trade Suarez and, and trying to cut some budget here and there, but they're also trying to, um, you know, fill the gap a little bit with a guy who can hit like Garver. I don't know. It's we'll see how it ends up at the end of the day. Um, but it, you know, a lot of teams are going through this where they're mandated by ownership to have a certain budget and you have a little bit to work with. So you see Antopolis doing it with Atlanta and taking advantage of some situations. You see the Red Sox going through it. You see a few other teams going through it. I think we'll hear more and more about the teams who are sort of limited in their budget um, based on all these issues with the RSNs. So, I, you know, sure, fine. <laughs> they need offense. Garver's fine. Yeah. Glad it worked yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Reds signed Frankie Montas to a one-year $16 million deal. A lot of people were upset about this one, thought it was too much for a guy who didn't pitch in 2024 and, or excuse me, in 2023 and didn't pitch that well for the Yankees after the trade in 2022. Uh, but according to the model, this is very fair. We The model had him at 16.4 for that one year, and he gets one year 16 million. So that's really right in line. And I mean, it, it makes sense. He's... Yes, he missed the year, but he was looking like a, a solid, like number two, number three-ish arm before that, uh, before the shoulder injury. And so it's a gamble, of course, but if if he was fully healthy, we'd be talking about a much larger deal. We'd be talking about like a five, six-year contract if he was hitting free agency as this you know, mid-rotation arm he looked like before the injury. So if that's the upside and you're just taking a one-year gamble on it, then yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. He, he projects pretty well he projects as a two-win arm according to steamer right now um and i think there's upside beyond that so yeah i think the value makes sense i think the contract makes sense and i think it's a good pickup by the reds yeah people who are complaining it was too much need to look a little bit closer under the hood and in the back story you know because he was a really good pitcher when he was on he had a i-90s fastball he's got a amazing splitter when he's throwing it um the big question there is the shoulder because um, he's had that shoulder issue for a while now, and he got surgery, had the whole layoff. So don't just look at, oh, he didn't pitch in 2023. Look back that and look under the hood a little bit, and you see he's a really good pitcher. They're only taking a one-year contract on him, so it's a bounce-back play. you know. And if he bounces back to anything like what he was, you're going to see fair value at least. So, And then he'll use that, um, from Montes' point of view, use that as a bridge to something bigger, hopefully, if it all works well. And if it doesn't, there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract, right? So, fine. Yeah. Now we go to a guy who I'm always going to connect to Montas in my mind, and that's Tyler Malley. Uh, they they yeah. were both traded at that 2022 deadline. They had both come off of shoulder issues, and they were both kind of a mess with those shoulder issues after the trades. So they're always going to be paired up to me. Um, Malley, however, uh, so, so Montas underwent shoulder surgery at the start of 2022 and made it back at the end of the season. Malley started the 2022 season or excuse me, 2023 season, uh, 2023 season for the shoulder surgery and coming back for Montas as well. And then Tyler Malley started the 2023 season uh, with the team healthy, made a few starts and then went under the knife for Tommy John surgery instead. So he still has some recovery time left for him. He'll miss at least the first half of the 2024 season as he continues that rehab. Uh, He gets two years, $22 million guaranteed with the Rangers. 
Um, it's backloaded, so it's that typical Tommy John recovery deal that we see all the time. It's five and a half million dollar salary in 2024, 16 and a half million in 2025 when they expect him to be back to full strength. And this kind of matches the timeline that we we expected from Jacob deGrom and that we have since learned to expect from Max Scherzer, who uh, unfortunately underwent back surgery, and it looks like he's going to miss the first half of 2024 as well. So uh, between these three guys, there's rumors connecting the Rangers to Clayton Kershaw, as there always are, and Kershaw would also be a second half kind of shot in the arm for them. It looks like they're, you know, kind of kind of pre-buying their 2024 trade deadline acquisitions. Uh, they have a bunch of guys lined up who should be, at least a couple of them, should be healthy for that 2024 second half push and into the postseason, and that could end up lining up really well for them. Uh, I, I think it's a smart signing. I think the model doesn't love it. It, it projects Mally at 16.8 over these two years. So it's about five million underwater off the off the rip here. But I think um, from from like a strategic standpoint, I really like what Texas is doing here. You know, why pay full market value to try and stock up your rotation for the full year when you know that not all those guys are gonna stay healthy all year? Let's take a gamble on a couple guys coming back halfway through the season, see what we have in July, August when they do come back, and hopefully we have a, a strong four or five to roll into the postseason with. Yeah, this one's very tricky to model because you're obviously got a guy on the shelf for a while and will continue to be on the shelf, um, and then you don't quite know because it's a shoulder issue, excuse me, shoulder issue, uh, what you're going to get. Um, so with Montaz, he's a little bit farther along. He's ready to pitch now, and so you're taking a shot on performance in 2023. With Molly, you're sort of like, well, he's not pitching in 2023 until the second half at the very best. So, And then you don't know what you're going to get. So that's why we're a little bit off on it. Um, but I think that's a reasonable assumption. I think you're you're still sort of saying, yeah, I don't know, because shoulder injuries are worse typically than elbow injuries, and sometimes you just don't come back at all. So the variance is higher. So that's what we're sort of saying here as well. Um, we do know, of course, he was effective. Uh, he had one particularly good year. Um, so there's that. If he can come back to anything close to that, they may get some value out of this deal. So that's what I got. And it's a really similar story to Montas in, in all of those different ways. But he was also more effective in the first half of 2022 with the Reds. And, you know, ERA is still up there, 440, but his peripherals were much better. And then he gets traded to the, to the Twins. Those shoulder injuries bark up, and he was kind of rough for them for four starts down the stretch and then got shut down. So it is a pretty similar story. We had a good run of success. He hit some some shoulder injuries. They slowed him down. He 2023 goes out the window because of those injuries, and he's going to miss some time in 2024. But when he comes back, you're hoping that he's that similar mid-rotation-ish kind of guy. And if he is, then... It, it, it's a bargain, right? So that's that's the gamble here for the Rangers. Uh, let's let's wrap this up with one gamble that I don't think either of us really understand because <laughs> it's it's not really much of a gamble. I don't see much upside here, and that's the Toronto Blue Jays signing Isaiah Kiner-Falefa to a two-year, fifteen million dollar deal. Um, I'm just not seeing it <laughs> at all the the model projects him to be worth six million over those two years so it's we're starting off nine million underwater on this contract and like i said there's just not a lot of reason for upside here he's a utility infielder he's never been an average hitter and his glove has always fluctuated and it's never really been truly loved by by some of the defensive metrics um 
he's not really a shortstop. He can't catch anymore like he used to, or at least he doesn't catch anymore. So he's really just this super utility type. And that's great and all. Every team needs somebody who can cover a few positions and, you know, fill a spot in the lineup without totally embarrassing himself. But at $15 million over two years, I don't get it. I don't know why he was this much of a priority for the Blue Jays that they felt the need to be this aggressive with him. I can't really put together an explanation in my head. I, I'm going to just going further. And this was a mistake. I don't know anybody in the baseball industry who thinks this was a good idea. And I don't know that many people in the industry, but even among sort of knowledgeable fans, just don't get this one. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You can look at his fan graphs page. He has never been close to an average hitter. All kinds of data supports the fact that sub, you know, guys with gloves who can't hit much aren't very valuable. We've seen it in trades of, you know, Nicky Lopez and, you know, uh, the guy from the Cardinals um, to the Phillies, um, blanking on his Edmundo name. Sosa. Yeah, yeah, Sosa. Like, there's all kinds of guys like that that basically just get thrown around the league, you know, and it's like, you know, they're up and down, and they they get traded a lot, they get paid a lot. There's not a whole lot of value because there's so many of them, and they're sort of interchangeable. I get IKF's positional, excuse me, positional versatility, but you can get a guy like that off of the off of the waiver wire, not much different with a seventy eight or WRC plus or whatever, who can play short and second and maybe third and maybe and like like it's not that hard to replicate. Why are you paying fifteen million for this guy? It doesn't you know, make the, any sense. The Blue Jays have that. They have Santiago Espinal. Right. right. How is he any different? He, right. he also had an eighty WRC plus last year. He might actually be better. He had a one hundred WRC plus in twenty twenty two and one fifteen in twenty twenty one even if you do project him along those 80 lines, like what's the difference here? Okay. Maybe kind of plays a little bit better of a shortstop than Espinal and okay. Espinal hasn't played the outfield kind of has, but is that really worth yeah. 15 million or even breaking it down by year, seven and a half million a year for that minor upgrade when you could just, you know, what if you instead got a real infielder, uh, a real replacement at second or third base and then you bump the combination of Espinal and Kevin Biggio into that role of floating around the infield and outfield and covering these different spots. I think that's way better. Why, yeah, why waste why, Unless they're going to continue to spend from here, because we know that they were involved in Otani and Yamamoto to an extent. And we know that, they, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have 50, 60, 70 million dollars sitting around to reallocate elsewhere. But if they do, then sure throw a few million at Kiner Falefa if you like him, improve your bench, whatever. But if this prohibits them from making any other moves or if they, you know, fall short on Matt Chapman because of this or, or whatever, then I, I don't get it. I don't like it at all. It, it doesn't yeah. make sense. It, it's not like we're missing anything here. It's not like there's upside that we haven't seen before. This guy's been around for a while. He is what he is. We all know who he is. Yes, he can play different positions, but he can't hit much. And you shouldn't be overpaying for a guy like that. End of story. Yep, absolutely. Okay, we've run a little bit long this time, but we are picking up on three, four weeks of news here. So um, I think that's fine. Is there anything else you do want to touch on before we wrap up? I will make one point, which is that, so now we're seeing some activity in the market, right? And one thing I keep seeing in Twitter from fans is like, oh my God, this market is bonkers. Everybody's overpaying for pitchers. If you look at what, according to our model, teams are not overpaying for pitchers, actually. They're right in line with where we think they're going to be. Keep in mind, Every year, there's a little bit of dollar per war inflation, just keeping up with the general economy. So if you think, oh, that's too much for 16 million is too much for Montos, it's not, actually, if you think about the whole thing. And 
you know, Giolito's contract is not too much. And, you know, there's, yes, there's a few teams competing and maybe one will slightly overpay here and there, but it's not bonkers, not the, from our perspective. And so, like, it's, it's not like we have to course correct for or change our assumptions about the market sort of data inputs, because right now they're seeming, it seems like a fair market is what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not crazy. Now, the other thing that's happening is budgets are starting to get spent. And so typically what happens is the owner says, okay, you have 60 million or 30 million or whatever it is. And so they start, you know, they have a board and they have targets and they, in the front offices anyway, and they, and they start to pick off their targets either through free agency or covering salary and trade or some combination of those things. And so we're getting to the point now where, yeah, they've made some moves. Most teams have made some moves and there's some budget left, but it's not like there's a huge amount of budget left. And so when you think, oh my God, you're going to have to pay overpay for this guy and overpay for that guy. No, because you only have so much left to work with. And now we're hitting into January and February is just around the corner. And so like, I don't know. I mean, and then I start to wonder about Scott Boris's um, strategy typically is to wait out the market. Well, you don't do that so much before teams like, nope, we're, we're tapped out. So you started to feel that we talked about the RSN issue and, that's affecting budgets as well. So my point is that it's a fair market and I'm not seeing a whole lot of teams with a whole bunch of money to spend. So I think we're going to have some measured deals to come in the free agent market and some some maneuvering again in the trade market to compensate for that. If I can get a guy in trade and I don't have to spend the capital, then I can get this other guy here. There's a lot of mixing and matching going on. So that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, especially when you look at the top free agents left, Cody Bellinger, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, like there's really valid concerns with all of those guys. Right. And, you know, there's reasons to like them. There's reasons big league teams want them on their rosters. But Cody Bellinger a year ago was terrible and, and non-tendered. And there's reasons to believe he took a meaningful step back, step forward, <laughs> step back to normal, step forward <laughs> to, to improve production in 2023. But... His expected stats weren't quite as good as his actual stats, so maybe there's room for regression there as well, in addition yeah. to just the normal aging curve. Blake Snell, he does this thing every few years, it seems like, where suddenly he is the best pitcher in baseball, even though he's walking guys and, and getting really good luck on his home runs and ground balls, and I don't think anybody's banking on him to be a Cy Young winner in, in his next deal, and they're instead looking at him as more of a two or three but is Scott Boris going to price him like that? I don't think so. And Jordan Montgomery, he's coming off of a really strong year and that really strong playoff run, but he doesn't miss many bats. And if he loses a tick or two on his fastball over the course of this next deal, he could very quickly be a fifth starter. And so there's such valid concern for all three of those guys that you didn't necessarily see with a guy like Aaron Nola or Yamamoto, like, those guys had all the upside in the world or, or in Nola's case, just a super reliable guy that you really feel like you can trust on this deal. Some of the arms that are left with those guys with, with Marcus Stroman, like there's some real things to nitpick here. And when you're running out of teams that are just going to say, ah, oh, screw it. I need the, I need the arm in my rotation. I, I think you're right. You start to start to see prices fall a little bit. Maybe these guys get fewer years than they were hoping for. Yeah. I think the other effect is, if you look at a guy like Shane Bieber, who's been rumored to be, is he going to get traded? Is he not? He's scheduled, he's forecasted to make over $12 million this year in his last start year. Whole bunch of red flags in his, 
in his profile, loss of velocity, missed two months, maybe needs Tommy John surgery. Who knows? He's at driveline and now trying to fix his mechanics. So we don't know what we're getting in Shane Bieber. It's like, is somebody going to take a, a chance to spend a whole lot of trade capital on a guy who's already scheduled to make 12 plus million dollars and is looking like a very shaky falling knife kind of situation. Like, I don't know if that's going to, so like, even a guy like that, like you have doubts about whether he's going to get moved or not. I do think Dylan Cease will get moved because, you know, he's healthy. You know, you look under the hood and he's still got some good stuff. Um, so yes, the price will be high. So, but I think somebody's going to bite on that price at some point. And, you know, if they've got the trade capital to work with. So I do think, you know, there's some movement going on in the trade market, I think with a lot of ifs and, and, and proposed packages going around back and forth and we'll see. But um, so I do think health, you know, what, what I'm seeing a lot is people want um, uh, at this point, they want a known quality. They don't want to overspend for a guy with a whole lot of red flags, you know, whether it's Bellinger, whether it's Bieber, whether it's, you know, guys that have other sort of issues. Like, I don't see a whole lot of craziness going on. I think you're going to have a lot of rational deals. Like, well, yeah, we see the upside, but we see the red flags too, and so we're going to split the difference. I think we're going to see deals that work out like that. Yeah, and I bet we'll see them in short order here because once the calendar flips to January, we start counting the weeks until spring training. So we are running out of time here. Yeah, speaking of, we're almost at two hours. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) in more ways than one, we're running out of time here, so let's let's wrap things up. Uh, That'll do it for us this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks for our first podcast recorded in the year 2024. Uh, to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe, enjoy the off season, and uh, enjoy your New Year's Eve. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.